You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wyatt, Terry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Robin Mock, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have David Baldacci back on the show with me today to talk about his brand new book, which is out everywhere today in hardcover and Kindle edition and audiobook. It's called Daylight, and it is book three in the Atley Pine Thriller series. Uh, welcome back to the show, David. Hey, it's great to be back. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, David, this is book three in the Atley Pine series. Um, you know, about this time in your series, um, we really start getting a sense of the character and and, and uh, really settle in um, with with all of the things that you've been teasing out so far for us. How does it feel to be right to have written um, at least third uh, chapter to her story? You know, it was really satisfying because I, much like the reader, I, you know, I have been waiting for this moment where a lot of things are revealed. Unlike the reader, I knew it was going to be revealed and they don't. So, but it was, <laughs> it was that anticipation, you know, to really sort of let it release to the world and let readers find out. And um, it's, it's hard work doing these types of series, particularly when it's really the same case stretched over multiple books. Unlike my other series characters where, you know, they, there are different books, but they each have different cases. This one has a thread of the investigation trying to find Atlee Pine's twin sister, Mercy, who was kidnapped 30 years when they were both little kids. So you really, it's sort of an intimate thread that goes through all of this. And you kind of have to play that fourth dimensional chess because, you know, what you, what you say and do in book one is set in stone. As far as that investigation goes, it cannot be changed. So book two, book three, you really have to keep looking ahead and make sure that everything is consistent and there's continuity. This it's a really interesting series because as opposed to like your um, Amos Decker series, uh, the memory man uh, where we have a character who has, um, you know, almost superpowers, uh, but then at the same time has, uh, has things uh, about his character and about um, his, uh, his past that are detriments to him. And, and they kind of, way out um with with atley pine we you told you made a promise to us uh in book one with long road to mercy i mean even the title is is a promise uh of sorts to readers that that this is uh that that mercy is is an ultimate goal here um can, can you kind of talk about the the overarching plan of a series like this where like you like you alluded to that there it's more of an intimate there's one kind of grand um, mystery that needs to be solved for these books, whereas the others are uh, you know, different adventures, even though we're learning more about the protagonist as we go. Um, what, what was the uh, what was the motivation to do a more intimate series uh, like this? I think that, you know, as a career, the longer you write, the longer you've been in this business. And I've been in it for like 25 years now. You have to find ways to motivate yourself to remain fresh and energized. And one way to do that is to try different things. You know, I could write the same book over and over again, almost in my sleep. I change the names and 
the books will sell. Um, but what's the point of that? So what I do to try to keep myself fresh is to get myself out of my comfort zone. I, I, I talk, you know, I, I sort of relate it to being like, you can sit in the comfy chair and be totally relaxed and chill and produce work. Or you can sit in a chair that has three nails sticking up and you feel those pen pricks all the time and it keeps you on the edge. And that's where you need to be as a writer. Um, you don't want to be comfortable as a writer because comfort turns into boring and boring turns into formula and nobody wants that. So for me, I had never done a multiple book series uh, with one thread of an investigation running through the entire series. So that was totally new for me. And that alone put me on my edge, put me into my discomfort zone. So that I, you know, was more attentive, I was more focused, I was more energized, I was more like, okay, I'm on this because it's different. It's not something I've done before. I have to be careful. I don't want to make a mistake. It's kind of like, you know, if you if you piloted a Cessna and you know how to do that, that's great. Then you go to a twin engine, that's a different challenge. And then you go to a jet engine, and that's a wholly different challenge too. You're a little bit more focused, you're a little bit more attentive, and you're a little bit more on edge, which is not a bad thing. And that's the what I've done over my career is find ways to make myself uncomfortable. Mm, that's a that's a great um, uh, point that to make yourself uncomfortable. Uh, it it's like, um, it, you know, each book, uh, you know, you're confronted uh, from page one with that blank page, and that's that's a struggle that every writer has, and your your past really doesn't matter when you're staring at the blank page. You, you know, you get to have 40, 50 books published, but you everyone starts at the same spot. Although the more you do it, obviously the better at it you get. Um, but it, it, throwing these challenges at yourself, like I'm going to tackle um, a book series like never before, and I'm going to have one mystery that stretches out is, is a great way to challenge yourself. Um, are there some other things that you've done to challenge yourself in your other series? Um, along the way, there is. A, I'll, well, I'll take the John Puller series for instance. Never written about the military before. It was a um, world I wasn't familiar with. My my dad served in the Navy, uh, and all my uncles served in armed forces during World War II and the Korean War. And but I had a lot of friends who were involved in the military. I live in Northern Virginia, which is a huge military platform. The Pentagon is here, and lots of other facilities. Um, so that was that was a challenge for me that I was I was a tackling a world that was a very strict, uniform, concrete, fact based world with lots of rules and regulations of how they do things. So for me, the challenge was to do an immense amount of research and then to write an entertaining novel where I left most almost all of the research out, <laughs> but I kept <laughs> I kept enough of it in to make it authentic and feel like a military book with a military character as the lead. With Amos Decker, Amos Decker was a character unlike any of which I'd ever created before. You know, most of my other characters are sort of, you know, heroic. They're, you know, they, they've got specialized skills. Um, they're physically fit. You know, look at John Puller or Atley Pine. You know, Decker, by comparison, was a physical mess. Yeah, he had been a football player and supremely athletic and fit. But when you first meet him, you know, he is horribly overweight. He can barely walk. Um, he's emotionally uh, a wreck. And he has a special skill that you alluded to, this perfect recall that is both a blessing and an albatross, like an anchor around his neck, because you can never forget anything, even the bad stuff that we all try to forget in our lives. So he was a character unlike any of which I'd ever created before. And again, I had to step up my game because I was in unfamiliar territory. Um, and I knew that it, to build this character out correctly, it would, it would require every inch of creativity that I could you know, bring to bear on the case. And so there are different ways of putting yourself on edge. You can write about uh, you know, 
a gender of which I'm not a member. You know, Adley Pond is a female. I'm obviously not. That lends, you know, an edge and a nerve to it that I have to sort of step up to challenge someone like Amos Decker, who's totally different than any character I've ever created before, or different moral like the military that I did with John Puller. So there are multiple ways that you can bring discomfort uh, to your writing and actually make you a better storyteller. Have, have you learned anything, David, uh, from writing Atlee uh, and, and putting yourself in that that female perspective that you spoke about a moment ago? Um, have you learned anything along the way that helps you to switch gears to get to a place that that you have no standing in because you're a, a man, obviously? Um, but are there things that you've learned about writing characters that you don't know? Yes. Um, with the Adelie Pine and this book in particular, I have found just in my personal life and my observations that men, and I'm not stereotyping, I'm just trying to explain my own experiences sure. and the people of which I know, that men, you know, boys growing up are taught to be more confrontational, uh, to be, you know, more macho, to maybe settle arguments um, in a different way than women are. And as you get into adulthood, um, I've found in my life that um, personally, women can tend to be a lot more confrontational with people. If there's a problem with, a, with anything, you know, with somebody, with a, a store or a vendor or a neighbor or whatever, women tend to be right there and saying, you know, this is wrong and I'm going to tell you why and we're going to come to an agreement. And the men are kind of cowering in the background going, hey, honey, you know, just tone it down a little bit, tone it down. Let's not get into an argument, you know. <laughs> um, but so they, you know, I, I, I find in my own life that women sort of stand up for themselves better. But the, I've also found that they tend to repress their emotions. They don't get mad as quickly as men typically do. They don't, the anger doesn't get there. They, it's there underneath, but they don't show it. But in this book, I sort of went along those lines with Adelie until a point in this novel where she just loses it. You know, she lets it all out. Um, and I think it was appropriate at the time because I think you, you talk about a character earning a right to do something in a, in a novel. And Pine, I think, had earned the right to just lose her, you know what, in the course of this novel. Uh, and it felt right and appropriate because I think that she had repressed it for far, far too long. And maybe she did it because she was female and, you know, growing up, little girls are taught to behave a certain way and little boys are taught to, 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 to uh, behave a certain way. I'm not saying one is right or one is wrong. I'm just saying this, these are things that I have observed. So, yeah, you do learn stuff about it. And, I, and I, as I was writing that one scene where she just totally lost it, I went back over it and over it and over it again, you know, pulled it back some, let it go out a little bit more, pulled it back again, trying to get it exactly right, because I knew it was really a pivotal moment that was sort of out of sync with everything I'd written about her beforehand. But at the end of the day, you know, people that I trust and rely on who read the scene said it it was absolutely perfect, spot on, because she had earned it. Love that. Um, we, we spoke a minute ago about making uh, a promise to the reader uh, in book one, but you know, the title of that book was long road to mercy. Um, and, and so we, we kind of set up from the beginning that we know what her ultimate motivation is and, and where this series is going. Um, did you, since, since this is a continuing story of sorts, not that each uh, individual book is not a satisfying read in and of itself, but but we know there's an ultimate goal that you're working toward here. Um, we've talked about your your writing and planning process before um, in dealing with individual novels. But did you approach a series like this differently, knowing that you're going to have 
um, you know, multiple entries into this bigger story? And and do you think about planning out the the larger overarching story? Yeah, those are all really good questions. And the answer to that is yes, yes for some and and others or more, we just let it grow organically. I'll give an example. So I knew in this book there were going to be two plot lines. One was going to be the investigation she was doing with John Poehler. And that was one that I thought through. And I knew pretty much how it was going to run and what the result was going to be. But that wasn't enough. It's almost like connecting, you know, you have a spine running down your back and then you have ribs attached and everything has to flow consistently. So the part of the investigation that had to do with John Poehler was fine. It ran seamlessly and it was sort of, you know, started from A and, and ended at Z. But I had to have offshoots from that investigation to run parallel with the investigation that Pine was conducting, trying to find her sister. Some of the characters involved in Puller's crime are also going to be involved in Natalie's Pine. So I had to, I had to make sure everything ran parallel and consistent. So it wasn't just about focusing on Puller's investigation and running that thread line through to its logical conclusion. I had offshoots, almost like bone spurs growing off your spine because you, <laughs> you lean forward too much and your head is like a bowling ball. So you have to have bone spurs that come out to ground you back in like, you know, tree roots. Um, I had to make sure that all those things were plausible and they fit and were appropriate and felt right. So that was a very, that was very different for me because I had to have two parallel investigations. But they, while they were parallel, they were also interconnected at the same time. And I had to make sure all those touchstones were spot on. Um, and I made a promise to the reader in that first book, it is a long road to mercy and she's going to get there at some point. Um, and in daylight, um, I can say that she finds out a stunning amount of information about what happened to her sister and where she might be today. And at the same time, finds out that most of her Atlee Pines past was a total fabrication. And most of the things she believed to be true about herself were actually all lies. Um, which is one of the reasons why, you know, she did what she did in this novel. And I, I took I took the promise I made to the readers quite literally. Um, I wanted to make sure that in each book, there would be more and more revelations and more and more truth, you know, delivered to them. So it's sort of, you know, recompense for them hanging in for the long haul. A hitman with a conscience. Ian Bragg is paid to kill people. Only bad people and not many, but for a great deal of money. Case the target. Make the hit. Move on until he meets the woman with sparkling green eyes who changes everything. A few pre-readers had this to say about Ian Bragg. Mark Dawson, million-selling thriller author, says a rip-roaring ride from start to breathless finish. Craig Martell hit a home run with the operator. The taut, lean prose and lightning-fast pace make this a page-turner without sacrificing an ounce of story or depth. You'll find yourself rooting for the hitman main character as he faces the toughest decision of his career. The Operator is the start of a new thriller series I expect to see burning up bestseller list for years to come, says A.C. Fuller, author of The Crime Beat and Alex Vane Media Thrillers. Suave, romantic, and lethal, Ian Bragg is everything you want in a highly paid assassin. Can't wait to ride this train, says James Blatch, self-publishing formula. It's been a long time since I fell this hard in love with a book, a very long time. Author of Women of Wine County Romantic Suspense, Terry Wells Brown says. Grab this book from Craig Martell, The Operator. Both Barrels Publishing is the brainchild of successful indie author James P. Sumner. He has self-published over 15 titles in the last five years 
and has over 800,000 downloads so far in his career, meaning he has a wealth of knowledge and experience to share with the indie publishing community. Knowing the struggles of the modern-day indie author as well as he does, he wanted to create a platform that would allow writers of any level to learn the ropes, navigate the pitfalls, and produce a professional novel without wasting time or money in the process. Both Barrels Publishing is the perfect one-stop shop for any indie author, combining James's expertise with his own team of editors and designers so you can help your novel realize its full potential and learn how to publish yourself. The purpose of Both Barrels Publishing is to help indie authors get their novels ready for publication without all the stress, hassle, and unnecessary expense. We want to make your lives easier, which is why we're giving you access to a top-notch team to publish your novels, along with a generous discount on their services. You can also work one-on-one with James to learn the intricacies of self-publishing. No hidden cost, no false promises. We simply want you to publish the best version of your novel. BothBarrelsPublishing.com so in in this book we have um, a a big story and you alluded to it with the the puller story um, and then we've got the the close personal story um, uh, that uh, Atlee is searching for her sister. Um, you do this a lot in in your other books as well, where we'll have um, a, a bigger, almost global story sometimes, and and then a, a narrow story that's that's character development. Do you? Uh, envision ways to tell these kind of parallel stories that are actually feeding into each other um in in your planning process do you do things to help visualize the story i do i mean i i love people ask me what's the difference between a mystery and a thriller i said well in a thriller more people die (laughs) (laughs) you know and maybe the stakes are bigger it's it's sort of james bondish the fate of the world is in the hands of these people and in a mystery you might have a detective investigating, you know, one murder or two murders or whatever. And that's that's a, a silly way of describing the differences, but also not entirely untrue. Um, so my goal is, I love the big picture, big stakes kind of um, controversies and investigations and knowing that at the end of the day, a, a terrible evil was, was uh, defeated and that people can live another day. And that's great. But there's also, I crave intimacy in my novels as well. And intimacy almost always comes from not the big, you know, violent mystery that's going to have worldwide stakes and repercussions. It's from the, the smaller stories inside the bigger story, where it has a personal effect on just a couple of people. Um, because I think that intuitively people relate to that stuff better. We, yeah, we all like the James Bond stories where, you know, if you don't defeat the, the terrible evil, lots of people are going to die and the world's going to be a, a, you know, a worse place. And that's fun. It's entertaining and people get a kick out of that. But it's the smaller stories with the personal connections where people can relate to, where they might not be able to relate to, you know, this huge criminal organization trying to over, you know, kill people and make tons of money. But one person being hurt, one person dying and having an effect on people who care for that person, that's what human beings, readers can relate to on a personal level, not the James Bond issue, but the one, you know, the intimate, the intimate loss. And so I always try to build that into my stories as well, because as a reader, myself, I like to read stories like that because even though the stakes might not be as big, they seem to cut even deeper because people can recognize the where they can't recognize and really relate to the loss of a million people, they can relate to the loss of one person and the effect that one death may have on the people's circle of family and friends. 
And that's that intimacy that I try to crave and I try to create in every story. David, you're one of the most prolific authors um, that that's publishing today, and um, especially over the last couple of years. I mean, you've had book after book after book come out, and and I know some of that has to do with publishing schedules and and things just kind of all hit at once. Um, but this has been an interesting year for a lot of people, and I, I think we spoke last in the spring, and this whole COVID thing was was just. Uh, ramping up and and we didn't really know what the summer was going to bring. And um, it, it's been a surprise for everybody. Um, yeah. There are, you know, writers are, are interesting people because most of us spend a lot of time in a room alone and we don't have a lot of outside interaction on a day-to-day basis. Um, but the, the mindset uh, things that are happening with COVID are, are affecting people differently. And, uh, I've talked to a lot of writers who, uh, mental aspects of, of the whole thing, even though their routine may not be interrupted, uh, the way maybe, um, you know, someone that works retail, uh, is, but, uh, how has it affected you this year and what are some things that you're doing to deal with it? Well, you know, um, obviously um, I had a big tour planned in the spring and that was all called off and I tried to do as much of it virtually as I could. And look, I'm one of the lucky ones. As you said, I can, I can do my job from anywhere. Um, and a lot of people can't, they have to show up the job and I have the you know financial flexibility where I'm not living paycheck to paycheck. And a lot of American, a lot of people around the world are, and I feel for them because they were in a horrendous situation where they have to go to jobs where they may be exposed to the COVID and not have the healthcare resources or the financial resources to deal with that. So they're caught between a rock and a hard place. And for me, uh, you know, over the winter, I was, I was incredibly productive just because a lot of the other normal things that I would do typically during the course of a year, you know, I couldn't do any longer. So I just focused on writing. Uh, I was even more isolated uh, than I typically am. That was a, that was a plus for me. But at the same time, this is, 2020 is a year that I can't wait to be over. I had a major birthday this year, and I feel like I should do it again next year because it just didn't feel like there was no happiness, you know. And you know, on top of the COVID, we had a huge election as well. And you know, I'm I'm very political. I was very much in that, and I had all my spreadsheets and data and polls, which all turned out to be wrong. Um, but you know, it was just a very stressful year for a lot of different reasons. Uh, and I think a lot of people will be very welcome and happy to see the back of 2020 and moving on, hopefully, to a better future. So I think it's changed. But one one thing for me is that even though we live in 2020, and you think that, you know, with modern medicine, thank God, we have lots of stuff. But this was a virus, and viruses have been around a lot longer than human beings, and viruses will be around after there are no human beings left because they're like the perfect survival machine. That's all their own, only job in life is to survive, however they may do it. Um, I think it, you know, sometimes it felt like we were back in 1918 with the Spanish flu, where, you know, you had people who were dying everywhere and the best medicine they had back then couldn't save them. And you look today, the best medicine we had today, uh, particularly early on, couldn't save so many people. And they just died. And there was nothing that the best doctors and, and medicine and the hospitals in the world could do about it. They, and they're continuing to die. That's why everybody's putting all their money on this vac- these vaccines coming through. And I, but as I tell people, vaccines are to prevent the disease. So it's, it's not like they're getting the vaccines to people who are on ventilators. It's not going to help them. So those people may not survive. I think it's just, 
it's made us aware that even though we live in an advanced age of the 21st century, that we are it's still a very fragile state that we live in, and things are not guaranteed, and that viruses can come along. Everybody reads about the virus, the plague, and bubonic plague, and the Spanish flu, and came through and decimated populations. And we're like, well, that's past. That's the history. You know, that's never going to happen again. Yeah, it has. It's happening right now. And I think it should humble all of us uh, to know that, you know, our existence is very fragile. And, um, you know, life can be taken away at a moment's notice. Uh, and that there's not a solution for every problem that we have, no matter how advanced that we think we are. That's really changed. That's made my mindset, you know, firm up a little bit, thinking that, yeah, it's 100 years since the Spanish flu, and life has changed a lot. Uh, but in some ways, it hasn't changed at all. How do you think uh, this year uh, and and COVID uh, particularly are going to affect uh, thriller writing going forward? Do you think we're going to have a, a glut of pandemic books come out or do you think it'll be more subtle changes to the way we tell stories? Yeah, I will. If there are a glut of pandemic books that comes out, mine's not going to be one of them because I'm not going <laughs> to write about it. I've, I've, I've lived it enough. I've had friends who have people you know who who have passed from it and so that's something i just want to you know put in the back in the in the rearview mirror Um, i've not met one writer who says that they're wanting to write a pandemic novel interestingly (laughs) but i know there's going to be plenty (laughs) oh i'm sure there will be plenty i but i as far as the you know how things can you know nuances can change um i i i think again i would go back to the fact that we feel like we're an advanced society um but a virus, um, a virus that, you know, may be similar to the Spanish flu in 1918, may be similar to the bubonic plague, with all the medical knowledge and history and advanced technology that we have today, where we're, you know, creating um, vaccines from, uh, you know, DNA and RNA and those things, which were possible 100 years ago. Even with all of that, you know, um, we can have a pandemic and lots of people can die across the world and lots of people can can get infected and have lifelong debilitating consequences from this sort of thing. So I think, you know, thriller writing writing going forward, I I would think that you would find that even though we're an advanced society, that you may find thriller thriller writers talking more about how, still how susceptible and prone we are to bad things happening to lots of people, because despite whatever technology and knowledge we may have, regardless of whether it's medicine or any other field, um, problems will arise that we can't initially solve. And people will suffer for long periods because of that until solutions can come through. So I think I think if, if I would sum it up, I would say, you know, for the people who thought that we as a society were bulletproof from lots of things, we're not. Absolutely. Well, as with all retail, um, book selling, it, it has taken uh, quite a hit in 2020 because uh, a lot of bookstores have been closed or have restrictions and, um, you know, people just aren't wanting to get out and go hang out at a bookstore like they maybe once were. Uh, one one section of the market that has done particularly well this year, though, is ebooks and audiobooks uh, because we can shop for those from the comfort of our Kindle in, in our living room or you know, download from Audible or, or you know, however we do that. Um, what do you think about the shifts that are happening in the way that we distribute books and the the formats that that our words now get out to people? Um, do, do you have have you noticed anything this year or 
or uh, has it made you think about book distribution in in any new ways? Yeah, it definitely has. I you know I have a lot of you know considered opinions about that. It's certainly Audible. Um, it seems like every time you have a downshift in one part of the business, you have an upshift in the other. Right. I mean, for a long period of time, hardcover sales were uh, diminishing and ebook sales were soaring. And then ebook sales sort of leveled off, hardcover cover came back, and then mass market, you know, the paperbacks plummeted. You know, if you were selling millions of copies of paperbacks before, now you're selling hundreds of thousands of copies, which is a considerable difference. And then, but the Audible picked up. Now, Audible, which used to be just a tiny slice of the business, now can be it for, you know, a best selling writer can be a seven figure slice of revenue now. Um, and that was never thought to have been possible before. Now it's, it is quite possible. But at the same time, I, I have to, while I'm doing on my tour these days, I'm doing lots of virtual events for independent bookshops that, you know, we need independent bookstores in the future. Um, they have, we have to make sure they survive so that they're on the other side of COVID because so many people are introduced initially into the reading world through walking into a small bookshop, finding a knowledgeable person who works there. And they all are because you don't start a bookstore unless you love books. It's just too, right. you don't make enough money, a lot of hard work. Um, and so that, that's kind of like the gateway. That's the gatekeeper into the, into the reading world. So if you lose that, then all of a sudden, you've got very few places where you can actually go into the world of book reading. And, it, and it's not enough to say, well, I'm just going to order something online from Amazon or Barnes & Noble. That's such a scattershot. What we need are people who develop a love of reading that'll be long-term and there'll be, be lots of books and they'll be a reader for life. And the gatekeepers for that are independent bookstores. So I'm doing all I can to make sure they survive. My wife, God bless her, she's been ordering. I think she's ordered now from 150 independent bookstores <laughs> all around the world over the last nine months. And oh, we are, our, our house looks like a warehouse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's a big book reader, but she's doing it for the express purpose of trying to keep these, these businesses you know, in business so they can survive to the other side. Because God help us, if the independent book business goes away, we will be a much lesser world. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we can all agree with you on that. Um, David, what's coming up next? And I, I, I know that your uh, your production schedule is full as always. Um, Daylight is the new Atley Pine thriller. What's what's coming up next from you? So in April of next year, you'll um, I'm publishing a book called A Gambling Man. It's a sequel to One Good Deed uh, with Aloysius Archer, my 1949 crime noir gumshoe. He travels to West Coast, California. Uh, and gets involved in a, a mystery there as he, he becomes a full-fledged um, a private investigator. So I'm really excited about that. It was it was lovely spending time back in 1949 and building out that world. It's so atmospheric, and I love that type those types of novels. A big Raymond Chandler fan, a big Ross McDonald fan with the Lou Archer series, and um, it was just a lot of fun. And then in the in the fall of next year, you'll get the fourth installment of Atley Pine, and in that book, you will find out everything uh, about Mercy Pine. And uh, and I'll, I'll but even though that that mystery will be over, I will continue to write Natalie Pond. She's definitely our keeper. I love it. I love it. Um, David, uh, we're going to put links to the new book Daylight in the show notes of this episode to make it easy for people to find. Um, you also have an amazing website full of resources uh, for people that want to dig into all the great stuff that you do. Where can they find that uh, mm. website at? Yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's davidbaldacci.com, um, and they can go on there, and it, it has links to other websites, my wishyouwellfoundation.org website, 
um, and they can learn everything about the books and all the projects that are going on, film and TV stuff, and lots of stuff about me. David, it's always a pleasure to get to catch up with you and uh, to get a glimpse into your world. We're going to send everyone to pick up their copy of Daylight, and uh, we'll see you again in the spring. That sounds great. I always enjoy talking to you. Take care. Thank you. On an isolated human planet called Phoenix, outside the Galactic Gate Network, a royal empire teeters on the brink of revolution. The new emperor is weak, the old guard seeks power, and a hidden slave cabal manipulates the great and small houses alike. None of this concerns Simeon Brazhnev, newly appointed steward to one of the most powerful heiresses on the planet. Happy to let the royals play their age-old game of catch the crown, Simeon is more concerned with balancing his mistress's books than worrying about affairs of state. But when Simeon discovers evidence of sedition at the highest levels of government buried deep within her finances, he realizes her great peril. Though a slave, he finds himself trapped in political intrigue, desperate to protect his mistress from the royals who would see her dead and the slave rebels who would make her their pawn. Agonized by the choice of turning her over to the authorities or protecting her secrets, Simeon decides to keep faith with his sovereign over his larger duty, thus flinging himself into a world of power, plot, and assassination. If he fails, they both die, and with them the chance at freedom for Simeon's enslaved race. Set in the Salvage title universe, Salvage Mind is the first of three novels in a new breakout series. Available in ebook format and paperback, Grab your copy today. Salvage Mind by David Allen Jones. Bone Thief, John Driscoll, Book One by Thomas O'Callaghan. A sociopathic killer is using the internet to lure seemingly random women to their gruesome deaths in New York City. During his heinous murder spree, this madman is extracting the bones of his victims. His sheer brutality has the residents of the Big Apple in panic mode. Who is this twisted psycho who's abducted a housewife in broad daylight only to dispose of her lifeless body alongside a lake in Prospect Park, nailed the boneless remains of a nameless drifter to the underside of a boardwalk at Rockaway Beach, allowed the gutted corpse of a single parent to wash ashore under the Brooklyn Bridge, and has had the audacity to leave the desecrated body of the Magnolia Tea heiress rotting atop trash at one of the city's sanitation dumps. NYPD's top cop, Homicide Commander John W. Driscoll, has never witnessed such savagery. Hammered daily by the district attorney, the mayor, and the police commissioner, the lieutenant, who's battling his own inner demons, must use every resource available to put an end to the killings. In a race against time, Driscoll, aided by Sergeant Alagante and Detective Cedric Tomlinson, sets out on a roller coaster of an investigation to first identify the villainous fiend and then put an end to his butchering. Grab Bone Thief by Thomas O'Callaghan now.